Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. Today we'll be talking about award criteria. We're putting them under the magnifying glass. Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bistec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello, we're back. We're back and we're recording again on-site in Copenhagen. Still at the Faculty of Law in Copenhagen, and we're joined today by Rasmus Hoskier Nielsen. Did I do that correctly? Yeah, it was quite good. <laughs> quite good. I always feel like that's a half fast. I'll, I'll try better next time. Maybe at the end I'll try More again. practice. Uh, but it's a pleasure to, to have you here today in the in Bistec, the Pro- Public Procurement Podcast. Um, and we invited you here today um, to talk a bit about your PhD, which you recently defended about award criteria. And for the, for the listeners... You, you've done basically every job there is to do when it comes to public procurement law or competition, I think, or at least from a lot of angles. Uh, you've worked at a big law firm as a, as, as a lawyer. You were an academic. You were a counsel at the Danish Competition and Con- Consumer Authority. And now you're an in-house lawyer at Endel, which is a, a public utilities company. So I feel like all of those aspects will have come back in the PhD at a point, or at least all those perspectives, but clearly it was an academic one in the end. Um, how's life been since uh, since you finished your uh, your PhD? Yeah, it's uh, it's been quite good. Um, I've been in academia, uh, maybe the shortest career in academia ever, uh, three months. But then I changed to Andal, as mentioned, and uh, yeah, it's been quite good since then. So you, I think you're being too modest, right? You you did the PhD, which I don't think you wrote in three months, but it was the position <laughs> afterwards, right? You know, yeah. A couple of years, so the perhaps it wasn't the shortest academic career because some people leave straight after their PhD. So well, and let's also hope that that's not that we did such a bad impression on <laughs> Rasmus that he just ran away. <laughs> no, no, it was a very good impression, but uh, yeah, uh, I got a good uh, job opportunity. So. It's one of those too good to uh, pass on, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So All right. So let's scope into your PhD. Um, what we'll be doing today is, I think, talking about some of the main points that you've you've uh, tried to argue for in that uh, research project. You have it lying in front of you here. It's a it's a big big book in uh, printed in A4, um, and uh, we'll be highlighting some of those aspects. But before we do that, and before we also go to to Maine and to dessert, where where hopefully you'll be giving some some advice about what to do and perhaps what not to do, what, what is the advice in hindsight that you can give to PhDs? Um, let's, you know, set the scene a bit. Uh, what are we talking about today? The focus is award criteria, but let's start with why are they so important and why should we actually be talking about them in this podcast? And why actually you chose that topic? What got you to actually decide, yeah, that's something that I can work for three years on? Yeah, um, a good question. Uh, after you've been working with the... Uh, with a topic for that long, you you also think oh, why why did I actually choose it? But yeah, but in my opinion, competition is at the core of the public procurement process. So even though we have uh, a lot of different rules, well, the the competition it's uh, is in the core of the procurement process because we need to have some kind of. Uh, 
bidder who is go we want to go into contact with. So, and when you look at the public procurement directive, actually there are very few rules regulating the, the competition. Uh, there are Article 67 and uh, there are a lot of different uh, rules uh, here and there, but, but at, at the end of the day, the, the competition is very, very uh, regulated in very few um, articles. So, so I, I looked into to competition and there are a lot of problems. Uh, when you have a public procurement process, a lot of the problems you encounter uh, regulate or relates to the specific uh, competition. So how are you going to set the award criteria and what is the weighting and how are you going to, to identify the uh, most uh, economically advantageous tender? So it's very difficult. And, and how do you use the evaluation methods uh, as a mechanics to, to, uh, to reach this goal? So there was a lot of problems from a legal perspective. And I, I thought that that it would make a great uh, topic for a uh, PhD thesis. So I went about to uh, to look at the topic, and uh, at at the start I uh, saw that there were you could say two topics. You had the the first topic where where you have to set the award criteria, the weighting, and the evaluation method. So what is what needs to be in the public procurement uh, or the uh, procurement documents. And then you have the, 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 the second part of it is when you evaluate the tenders. And uh, at a starting point, I thought that my thesis would uh, cover both uh, those topics, but uh, quickly I realized that that would be... A, a, Three PhDs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I narrowed down to just the, the award criteria, weighting and evaluation method when you have to set them in the procurement documents, what rules and boundaries are there. So, and that is, yeah, the 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 main topic for, for my PhD. That's fantastic in a way to start with... Um uh, with frustration and difficulties <laughs> in practice, right? So, because yeah. generally, I also find that they're rooted in more fundamental problems that are interesting from an academic perspective. So mm. that's, I think, why it's so important to keep in touch. Also, with when I speak to, to give you an example, when I speak to contracting authorities in the Netherlands, I would say that evaluation is by far the, one of the most difficult aspects of the public procurement process. Because in a way, choosing for a certain type of procedure, okay, manageable to set certain technical specifications if you're aware of what the market does and what you would want in terms of app sustainability level. Also difficult, but manageable. But when you actually need to start thinking about how can these firms actually, or these economic operators compete and how can we manage to get the most out of what they're willing to offer, that's all of a sudden a whole different ball game. So that's why I was also um, happy to hear that you looked into this, uh, this aspect and uh, I suppose there's uh, when you say um, that would have been three books. There's still time to write the other two, right? So uh, <laughs> yeah. let's uh, let's uh, let's hope they they actually get written at a point. And I think it's also a very good point uh, as a, as a point of reference or advice for anyone that is doing a PhD or is considering doing a PhD. It's just that the work that um, Rasmus did, and and we right now, as as Villa mentioned, we're looking at the. PhD in the way how we had a chance to look at his defense. But since then, Rasmus also published it, unfortunately or fortunately, because this is when we become very unique, because you can hear about the thesis in English. For now, the thesis is only in Danish, but I know that 
I think Rasmus, you at some point was considering writing something in, in English, so there might be something coming at some point. But until then, the podcast will be the thing to look at. But um, it's also extremely practical, right? That means that whatever the work that Rasmus did with the PhD potentially can really help out someone in, in, in practice. And I think that's also a great part about our work, right? For sure. So we're hoping that, you know, whatever insights or how nerdy they might, the discussions might be today is that they actually would help people or, lecture, or on, the, on the other hand, spur the academic debate when it comes to this. So when we look at this topic, right, you, you introduced it, we're looking at Article 67. And if you would include lifecycle costing, perhaps we can include 68 as well. But like the focus is 67 in the, in the classic directive. Um, when we talk about the status quo, of the of the law where are we at right before we start tearing the house down what are we actually <laughs> what's the house right what is in, and when and because you mentioned it yourself as well and that's been the core of your thesis when it comes to transparency in the announcement like what do we have to announce mm. and what can we announce what where's the distinction made in terms of award criteria yeah um the status quo is that you need to publish all uh, criteria and you need to publish the weighting uh, of the criteria, at least at a um, sub-criteria level. And then you have the... Uh, that, is, that is like the publication uh, requirement. But then you also have a requirement that the award criteria, they must be linked to the subject matter of the contract. Uh, they can't give the contracting authority uh, an unrestricted freedom of choice. You also have the the, the uh, requirement that it should be able or suitable to identify the most economically advantageous tender. So there are a lot of requirements when you set the award criteria and then you have to publish it. But in my thesis, I go into... So we have in from... The directive and from court cases, we have like a list of requirements. Uh, but I go into my thesis and look at what is, what does this these requirements actually mean? Uh, what can we do and what can't we do? And uh, for instance, uh, uh, a question is: Is there an obligation to uh, to publish the evaluation method? Uh, and is there a possibility to have? quite subjective award criteria or um, should it all be measurable? So there are a lot of, even though that the requirements are quite fixed, there are a lot of discussion on how do we understand these requirements. And I totally agree with Marta that uh, this is very relevant in practice. And that is the, the perfect thing with public procurement uh, law. We have uh, an academic view, but it is all very relevant in practice. And regarding competition, it is, I hope that my conclusions in, in my thesis, uh, that they can be used directly or at least give some pointers to a discussion. It's, it's nice to talk to a, a public procurement aficionado, right? We also speak to, uh, to Ole, a contract law specialist, academic here at the university. He was a bit more hesitant, I think, to He's accepting the fact that... He's not buying into the coolio that we take, <laughs> for sure. So I feel like we've, we've found another public procurement, uh, well... Can I call you a nerd as well? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, please. <laughs> and I say that with the highest regard, of course. Yeah, and there is also in probably just to add to what Rasmus already described, um, there is also slight differentiation that also makes it interesting in practice between member states because 
in context of the evaluation methods, and, and we for sure will hear about it uh, from Rasmus a little bit more, but the European level, more or less, and uh, in, in DiMaggio tells us you don't have to always, under all every circumstances, publish the evaluation method. But if we look, for example, at the Danish uh, system with the section 160, Rasmus, correct me if I'm saying something wrong, uh, we have the uh, requirement of publication of evaluation methods. So I'm wondering that probably a variation of similarities and differences in, in approaches across Europe will be will be existing, right? For sure, because also, just to quickly add to that, in the Netherlands, it's not obligatory to to, to publish the, 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 the scoring method or the, the evaluation model, whatever you call it. Um, it. It's still up to the discretion of a contracting authority. Some do it, most of them don't. That's, I think, the status quo we're at in the Netherlands. So I think that's why it's also an interesting topic to, to, to get into. Um, so we have some regulation on the EU level. Some member states have, have regulated a bit more, like in uh, like in Denmark. There's a difference between what needs to be published and what doesn't need to be be published um, in the announcement of the tender or in the in the tendering documents. Um, and with that recap in mind, let's let's dive in a bit. Let's uh, let's go to our main. Yes, exactly. So let's let's start with again a slight uh, scoping. Um, Rasmus, if you can introduce us more broadly, and in a second we'll get into this more technical, detail, kind of nerdy stuff. But if we would to try to paint a picture for listener or future reader of your thesis, what are the main takeaways? What are the main sort of points that you focus on that we would dive in a little bit more in, in this discussion? Yes, um, you could say if you look at my thesis or... It wasn't uh, apparent for me at, at the beginning, but at the end, I could see that we have a lot of court cases rega regarding the competition, but they can be seen separately or we can see them like in, in, in some kind of big storyline. So as I also mentioned to, to my PhD def defense, um, uh, there's a, a old, old Chinese saying where you don't look at the waves, look at the current. And that is what I'm trying to do in my thesis, look at the current of the different court cases. And in that view, I look into that there are two currents, you could say, that you have a lot of requirements that ensure a relevant competition. So you have to have transparency. You have to have a competition that is in line with what the directives say, so an equal competition. Um, and then you also have a competition where you are able to identify the economic uh, most uh, economic adventures tender. So that is a lot of requirements to ensuring a, a competition for the bidders. Then you also have some requirements in relation to ensuring a control so that the bidders can control that the competition is in line with the principles and all the requirements. And if we look into that, the relevant competition transparency is at heart of that uh, that current, you could say, uh, because you need to get information as a bidder, and you need to get information about the competition to evaluate if the contract is or the procurement process is relevant for you. So you need uh, information about the award criteria. You need information about the weighting. But also you need the information at a point where you can assess the contracts. So that's primarily in the contract notice. And that 
information should be clear and stable throughout the process. Then you also have some kind of requirements for the specific award criteria. So the criteria must be objective. They uh, can't uh, allow uh, an unrestricted freedom of choice for the contracting authority. And all that is regulating the competition. Um, and in that view, you could also view at, uh, look at the evaluation method where we have the, the great question is, the evaluation method, is that an information that is relevant for the bidder as, uh, as a part of the relevant competition? Is it a relevant information? Or is it only a re uh, relevant regarding the control? Or is it, or is it uh, none of the above? Um, so if we look at the main points of my thesis, I, I think that I'll try to structure the different requirements within a setting of the court cases. And there are court cases that deviate but I, I think that we in academia try to to like uh, make a path uh, look at the path we've traveled and say well we are going this way and I try to say that we are going towards or have uh, traveled the way of a relevant uh, competition and a uh, controllable competition but I don't know if you agree with that. Um, I think I think that definitely, uh, as you might remember from the defense, there was some question around where you started, but definitely there was acknowledgement of a huge amount of value in in the work that you've been doing, uh, particularly the. The, the challenge of understanding, and maybe that here you can tell us a little bit more, is uh, because exactly if you read through the law, you won't find a reference as such to uh, would you describe a relevant competition or controllable competition. Mm -hmm. Can you then tell us a little bit more about how you see those two concepts? Yeah, um, I, I agree. There isn't anything in in the procurement directive or uh, in court cases where they talk about the relevant competition or controllable competition. But but when you look at the results from the court cases, it it's the the different waves uh, signifies the current. So if you look at the relevant competition, well, you have to have a transparency in what are, what what is the competition. So that the bidders can evaluate if they want to participate and they can structure the bid. But if, if you have an information that isn't relevant in that sense that it is a relevant information for the bidder, well, then you don't have to have it in the procurement documents. And that is not only relevant for the competition. It could also be relevant for other information, maybe information regarding the contract. Um, we have seen with the Siemens number wheel case where you had to put in a maximum value because you need to know if you actually can fulfill the contract. Even though that doesn't really relate to the competition, it's the same line of thought that you need to have information that is relevant for the bidder. So by relevant competition in different way of, or wording it in a different way, you would say the type of information that is relevant for competitors to decide, A, if they want to participate in tender mm. and B, how that, informa that information impacts the way how they will design the offer. Is yes. that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. And that's just a uh, uh, 
transparency part of it because a relevant uh, competition, you could also call it a public procurement uh, competition because it isn't a, a free competition as in other part, parts of private law and so on. It's a specific competition. And with the requirements, I set out transparency, you have to have the public procurement kind of competition and you have a, uh, to have a competition that where you can identify the economic most advantageous tender. Then you have a specific kind of competition and all the requirements, they ensure that you have this kind of public procurement kind of competition. And there, there isn't really a word for that. And then I, um, and that might have been a bad idea, but then I made up my own word and it's relevant competition. You know, that's the part of PhD, right? Creating concepts. So <laughs> I, I, I think that, that you have a good reason to do so. Okay, so I think that we kind of have a grasp of what the relevant competition for the purpose of your thesis means. What about controllable competition? Yes, uh, controllable competition is the control that the bidders sh sh uh, should have over the public procurement uh, process. So you have to have the uh, ability to control if the contracting authority actually have uh, fulfilled the rules that it sets for themselves, but also the principles. So, and th in that way, uh, transparency is also a part of the controllable uh, competition because even though you have information that are relevant for the bidders and then it must be a part of the procurement documents, it also allows the bidders to have a control afterwards. But you, ha you also have information that are not relevant for the specific competition or relevant for the bidders, but they can still have a relevance for the control afterwards. And then you have to have some kind of different system. So you have like a public procurement relevant competition, and then you have the possibility, you must have the possibility to control if that competition is in line with the principles and the directive. So to give a simple example, when we're talking about a controllable element of the competition is the fact that I know you said that you assign, let's say, 60% of award criteria to quality, and there needs to be enough transparency in the process that if you suddenly change your mind and did 75%, I need to be able to find about it to challenge such a change and such an award. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. It's exactly the point that because if we don't have a control, we don't have the ability to see if the contracting authority actually have fulfilled uh, their, their obligations. So you need to have a system with control and that it can be transparency, but it can also be other requirements. So Rasmus, in your approach, I would say that you go very much with this theme of we need more control over ultimately what contracting authorities are doing. And you also make um, this the, the statements in the line of argumentation of pointing out towards the fact that we need more control over award criteria or award criteria need to be subjected to a higher degree of control. Why is that so and how we can do it? That's a good question. Uh, we have a situation where contracting authorities, they feel they're getting attacked almost, that where you say, well, we need control. And the contracting authorities say, well, why don't you trust us? But in my view, the public procurement directive is, for lack of a better word, it is a possibility to control the contracting authority so that you could say that trust is good, control is better. 
And just to jump into your work, I think this is also how the ultimately the roots of how we design European public procurement, that that's the setup, isn't it? That we said, we actually don't trust them that much. There's some discretion, but we generally don't trust the, the system that much. So those are checks and balances to ensure that, right? Exactly. And if you have that notion, it makes it, 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 the rules easier to understand. So... Uh, yeah, you could say that the procurement directive is like a miss. Uh, they don't really trust the contracting authority. But yeah, that is the uh, state of the law. So, and in that view, in my opinion, it doesn't make really sense. We have all these rule, rules relating to public procurement. If we at the end just can choose whoever we want because we have very soft metrics or soft criteria where we just can say, well, you get 10 points and they get six and we can't really control it. So, or verify it. So it's, it's, in my opinion, you need, it's within the scope of the system that you need some kind of verification and control so that you, that the procedure or procurement process makes sense. Okay, so taking the, that, that point, right, or that as a given, right, we need stronger control when it comes to award criteria. Um, you could say, well, let's not award based on sustainability criteria anymore. Right, that solves half of the problem. We don't need further oversight because there's less discretion involved. I would be interested to hear your thoughts on that. And hopefully your answer would be no, we should still award based on sustainability criteria. I also just want to interject <laughs> that I reject the notion that sustainable criteria are not objective or measurable. Exactly. But that was the second part of how I was setting it up. Uh, thank you so much for intervening, Martha. Um, is how would we... Because I think that's that's where it gets tricky, right? Uh, when you look at many countries that are still struggling with high levels of corruption or conflict of interest, they generally say, well, let's go for lowest price because, you know, sustainability is too subjective. That works, that, that will lead to more nepotism, more um, uh, contracts being awarded to, you know, friends and family, right? Um, what would be ways or what would be in that scenario when you talk about greater control, ways and tools of how contracting authorities could, in line with the law, make sure that that objectivity is there in a subjective world? It, it is very difficult because we, I agree that there is discretion and that you can't re only have measurables, uh, measurable uh, criteria. You need to have the discretion and the possibility to take taste into account. Um, in my opinion, you can't have uh, very flexible award criteria without the checks and balances. And that is the, the heart of the question. So, for instance, I have in my thesis an example of coffee. We know coffee is... Very good example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, if, if there are very different uh, opinions about coffee. Um, I'm quite new to the coffee scene. Uh, I was introduced to it in, uh, in uh, Italy, in Torino, and now I can't get enough of it. But I, I see that there is a very, very different uh, coffees. And, yeah, you, uh, strong opinions about what is good, good and bad yeah. coffee. Let's just say you're talking to a double certified home barista. <laughs> <laughs> who actually managed to, during COVID, took on a couple of online courses. So I know everything there is, not, I know a lot there is about coffee. But keep going, don't feel pressure, but like, but, know who you're talking so to. So coffee, yeah, Rasmus, tell us how, if we, if we want to do coffee, how we do it the right way and how it's done in a way that it's questionable then. Yeah, uh, uh, then you, you would agree that you can't really measure the taste of coffee. You can have some kind of criteria where you look at what are you, going to 
give a positive evaluation, like is it bitter and so on. But you can't really put it into a formula. And in that case, I would say that you have to have some other checks and balances. For instance, that you don't see who is the supplier when you taste the coffee, because you need to taste the coffee to know if it's good. But if you don't know who the supplier is, you create some kind of checks and balances where you ensure that there isn't a risk of favoritism. Yes, yeah, so you're trying to neutralize the potential issue, right? So another aspect of it is in when you buy food, and I know Copenhagen Municipality, when they conduct the tenders on food, they also really uh, stand by the notion of having the sort of taste makers and the argument being it's not actually anyone who is involved in the procurement evaluation that tastes the coffee, but they actually get, you know, sort of cooks with qualification and years of experience that you can argue the objectivity of the fact that they are capable of trying something and they have refined taste to actually be able to say this is good, this is not. In combination with what you described, Rasmus, also the anonymity of the samples that you taste, that that sort of together gives enough good of an argument saying that taste, which uh, might be a subjective criterion, is carried out in the most neutral and objective way possible, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I think that uh, the, the way the Copenhagen municipality is going about it is, is the right way to ensure that the, the award of a contract is a result of a competition and not a favoritism or the risk of favoritism. So, so it's, and we need to have some kind of uh, things that are not measurable. Uh, it, we can't do procurement without that, but it's how we're going to go about it that's important. And right now, because we don't have any court rules, uh, court uh, decisions on that, uh, it's quite freely. And we uh, have seen, at least in Denmark, some criteria which are very, very flexible. Uh, and I don't think that if the question is put before the, the Court of Justice that they will say, well, just go about it. You can do whatever you want. Uh, I think that they would put some kind of guidelines into place where you have to ensure that there isn't a risk of favoritism. And I think just to add to that, I think also coming back to what Marta said about the the experts, right? I think in general, you can talk a long long and hard about what an expert is, but in general, I think an expert has developed a certain methodology in their head to be able to assess good from bad, right? And in a way, that's uh, what we're seeing a lot in Dutch practice, just talking about the coffee example, uh, is that, you know, employees of municipalities are set in the in the evaluation board and are clearly everyone compl- always complains about coffee in the in the workplace, right? But what they try to do is to make that more, more objective by simply state, stating these are the criteria that you need to look at. So leave your own, like, biases behind, try to do that and actually say is is this you know is this a a, a sour taste or is it a, a bitter tone or is it or is it actually sweeter or is the temperature nice right or is it you know can you drink lots of this is the coffee too strong in terms of so and and as i'm saying these some are more verifiable than others yeah, right? nice and, is not particularly sort of verifiable right? exactly yeah. so that's the hard bit or but then you can work in scales right you could say yeah. very nice nice average etc etc nice is definitely not the right word but like you you understand like that i think in a way it's not just experts is one route but evaluation committees to try to make things more more objective can also be done by laymen yeah, and as long as I think as long as you take it out from the ones that evaluate 
So I think that when you have those criteria, you need to sort of outsource it. So there is no, again, the risk of favorism that Rasmus mentioned. Then you can do that. But I just want to have, and it's nothing to do with law, but I just wonder because if you are a listener and you're thinking, oh yeah, great, those Dutch and those Danish, they have plenty of money to do those things. I think that there is also something to address here that, you know, some municipalities or smaller contracting authorities of different member states that the budget are even smaller. I wonder whether some of those things that we discuss right now is actually possible to be carried out, you know, to, mm. for example, you know, employ an expert, you know, trio to evaluate taste of something. Um, I think that there is a good approach. I'm just wondering if this is not something that some of our listeners might be, yeah, not possible in my member state. And what mm. then to do? Because then is that meaning that we cannot use those type of criteria? And then we're going back to the argument that those member states will say, that's why we just need to use the lowest price, which I think it's something that none of us really would want to see in years to come. Yeah, uh, I, I agree that that could be a valid point. But you could also say, what if the contracting authority doesn't have the resources to look at the market? Mm. So is because they didn't look at the market, they can just do whatever. Yeah, um, that's a fair point. I, I think that uh, you need to fulfill the requirements, and the, uh, there will be, uh, in my opinion, or that that is what I'm stating in the the PhD thesis, that there will be requirements in order to ensure that you don't have the risk of favoritism. And even though there isn't a court case right now, there are other court cases where they look at it uh, and see that. Well, as a main rule, you have some kind of flexibility, but you have to put something into place to ensure uh, that there isn't a risk of favoritism. And I'm just em employing that structure in relation to award criteria. I just have one last question before we jump to the dessert, and it's a bit cheeky. So, Rasmus, when you think and when you discuss competition, because in my eyes, let me just guide you through my line of thought, and I really wonder what you think. From my perspective, if we look at a competition as a counterweight to favoritism, the competition can be still narrower than the very broad, almighty, we need open competition to the broadest concepts each and every time in public procurement. And I wonder whether, which, which one of those you kind of prescribe to in your thesis? If I understand your question correctly, it's uh, you need to have a competition that uh, fulfills the requirements. Mm -hmm. And that can, as a result, you can have a quite narrow competition without it being um, a problem uh, in relation to the, to the procurement directive or the principles. I think that if you have to open the competition, there are other tools you need to uh, use. So, for instance... We have the, um, and that might be taking uh, one of the dessert questions uh, up now, is that it's right now you, you have procurement documents in every language in the EU, but it might be able to, and that might be looking uh, ahead, you might be able to have some kind of um, tra translation of the procurement documents, and then you can put forth a bid in your native language, and then it's going to be, uh, translated uh, so the contract authority can see it. That would be a tool to open the competition. Mm. I don't think that uh, small t uh, tweaks uh, in, in the competition uh, actually will uh, will 
So you see rather the bigger issue of language just as an access point, for example. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. a great barrier. And I think that that's the point we should uh, look at and not the, 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 the small tweaks in, in rules and regulations regarding competition. Okay. If you can ask one cheeky question, I can definitely also <laughs> ask one, right? Um, and then we'll promise to go to dessert. <laughs> I also, there's one part of your thesis that I would, didn't want to leave un, unnoticed. And I think it, it comes to the, the transparency requirement for, for scoring models and methods. And the reason why I was sparked by it is also because of the research that former and current colleagues uh, of mine at Utrecht have done. So Jan Telgen and Fredo Schotanis, the, the chair in public procurement and economics at the moment. And they're very clear. They basically say, it is, and I've heard them use the word, it is stupid. I heard that word too. <clears throat> exactly. It is stupid to not publish. That's, by the way, that's that's purely, only economists can do something like that, right? <laughs> Very bold um, statement. Uh, uh, it is stupid to not publish the scoring method. Or not to require them by law. I think that was also like a... That's the next step. Yeah. So basically now in the Netherlands, they're, they're working with the non-obligatory nature of the, of the law when it comes to this. So now they're saying as a contracting authority, you have the room to publish it, so you should. And their line of thought is, and perhaps and I'm, I'm briefly paraphrasing now, is if you don't give bidders the model, they don't know how to make come up with the best bid. right? So they do have no clue about how you're actually going to apply the weighting and the criteria that you've published, right? So they can't go onto their Excel sheet and give you the best bid. In, in, in response to that, many contracting authorities say, well, but then they know how we're going to evaluate, right? There's no leeway anymore, right, for us to, to actually judge them. Whereas I think, and I, I would fully agree with them, I think the argument is, but you, you want to get the most out of the bids. So, of course, you want to give them as much information as possible. You want them to be able to say, I'm actually going to up my price a tiny bit because then I'll get, or I, I'm able to offer more quality and that gets me this much, this many points. So it actually helps me, right? And then if I can just pose that towards the law, then EU law says you don't have to, right? The DiMarzo case that you mentioned uh, already. And this is where I think your, well, one of the more feisty uh, comments of uh, or, or conclusions in your um, in your PhD comes in, is that you actually advocate for transparency. And I'd be really, I want to just give you the floor to to to, to talk a bit about that. Yeah, that's uh, correct. Um, I only look at the, the 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 problem from a legal point of view, but I, uh, where economics they look at the, what should you do. I I look at what what is the obligation, uh, what do you have to do? And I agree that the DiMasso case, it stated quite clearly, you don't have to publish the evaluation method. But, and in that, uh, the court is also saying that, well, you have the award criteria and you have the weighting. So as a bidder or a tender, you have all the relevant information. But, and it is also stated in the DiMasso case that you have to have a stable Waiting, so you can look at the waiting, and then you can rely on that. In my opinion, it's a bit of a false premise, because it is very difficult to control that an evaluation method doesn't affect the waiting. So, the choice of evaluation method is actually affecting the waiting and then the information for the bidders. Uh, in my view, uh, it could be relevant to uh, disclose the evaluation method uh, beforehand, as we also do in Denmark, um, because it's not really possible afterwards to control 
that the weighting is upheld. And that is also why we go into like the controllable competition where the, uh, the Court of Justice they state that you must set the evaluation method before you open the bids. So in that way, you can control that there isn't a risk of favoritism. But in saying that, they also acknowledge that you can use the evaluation method to affect the weighting and then affect the result of the competition. So actually, uh, in, and it's getting a bit technical, I know, but in, in that way, you have an acceptance that evaluation method does affect the weighting. And if it does that, then you need to uh, uh, dis disclose it all. Then you have the relevant information as a bidder. And I think that this work of the fellow colleagues, the economist that Willem, you mentioned, I think that this is actually, I've seen Jan in a couple of workshops really showcase mathematical examples, how this thesis that, that Rasmus underlines is flawed, uh, that that's actually correct argument because he showed on several occasions that depending how you actually do the methods, you can really affect And I think he goes through like two or three examples and each time someone else wins, depending how you sort of uh, tinker with the with the evaluation methods. So I think that this is another example how the economics and law, again, must work together because this is actually a very non-legal argument that proves that I think legal thesis. Um, For sure. So, and I think anytime lawyers and economists tend to agree, we need to do something so with it, right? Um, I, we need to uh, start looking at dessert. Um, Uh, dessert will be your advice, practically, right? So you've finished, you've, you've done the hard work, you've gone through all of the, the trials and tribulations. If you could very briefly give two bits of advice, if one's also fine, but to, uh, to future PhDs or current, current PhDs, what to do, what not to do, what, what were your lessons learned? Uh, can you share some of that? Or in other words, if you were to do it all over again, What you would do different, if there is anything that you would do different? Yes. That's a big class. There is a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So, but uh, the top two list, I would say that uh, there's uh, one thing I would do more of, and that is talk to people in the academia about my thesis because it's very, very helpful. And I, 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 I often say that the public procurement law is the nicest area of research <laughs> because we uh, actually you often have uh, a bit of you feel uh, that you uh, is a are a bit is a bit of a burden because we when I talk to you Marta uh, for example I just require information and uh, and I'm talking about my thesis so I I, I think that I'm uh, hogging your time but 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 it is very effective. Uh, just to talk about ideas uh, and uh, how you're going to structure a thesis and so on. It's, it's very helpful. I, I should have done more of that. And okay, so one was be open to others and discuss your research. Yeah, Two. especially in public procurement because everyone is so nice. <laughs> so it's... Uh, Except for... No, get it. <laughs> you're walking on a thin line, sir. Except for Willem Jan. So yeah, keep going. Yeah. Uh, and the second part is that I should have had a better plan for the final half year of my thesis. I should have had a, a, a final draft of the complete thesis finished uh, earlier than I did because uh, I have a very understanding wife, but the last couple of months they were very grueling on. It's, it's a PhD, so it's quickly becoming, becoming a family project. 
Uh, and it's uh, the last couple of months. They were, yeah, they were quite uh, difficult. Uh, so I and I think if I had a, a like a final draft um, uh, months earlier, it would have been a bit more easy. The final uh, couple of months. Um, so. But so when you think if you would just to sort of shoot a line, so we're talking about three years PhD, just uh, for because in different countries again a bit different. So when you think what. Three months before to have a final yeah. draft, what do you think? At but least, at, at least, least. Uh, yeah, I would say five, four or five months. Uh, that gives you a good time to sort of revise and sort of clean it up and so on. Yeah, because you don't, you know, when you you still are writing, you're you're going down the rabbit hole, and then you just eat up a lot of time, and then you, you but you need a lot of time at the end just to to read it again and again, uh, try to structure the arguments and so on. So, uh, and I I didn't have quite as much time as I probably needed. Well, otherwise, you did a great job. I was there. I listened to you, and and the book uh, and the project was great. Um, and I'm very lucky that you managed also to publish it. And we look forward. We lost you, Rasmus, a bit in academic sense, but we hope you stay around and you will pop by to the procurement scientific field uh, as much as possible. So thanks so much for joining us today. It was great pleasure to having you on Bestech. Thank you. For sure. Um, I promised I would say your last name uh, again, right? <laughs> so, Rasmus Hoskier Nielsen. Do I does it get better every time? Getting better every time, uh, yeah. Then now you're just being too kind. All right. Thank you so much also from me. This was Bestech, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestech, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com. Thank you.